So if you want right now, we're, we're continuing our series through 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I wanted to say something in the introduction because this is one of those passages in the Bible that's kind of jarring. And so I'm not saying something up front to apologize for it because I don't think that we ever have to apologize for what God has told us in the scriptures. Um, but I do want to say something because if we just got into it and started walking through, for some of you, you, you might kind of feel like you're swimming and you need some help. So this is a passage that talks about gender roles in the church, kind of manhood and womanhood. Um, specifically, it's a passage where the Apostle Paul says, I do not permit a, permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So in case you're like, wow, that, that's what I'm talking about. That's why I'm giving a little bit of an intro here. Um, it's obviously a wildly countercultural passage, as it is anytime we come up to the Bible in, in the 21st century United States, anytime we come up to a passage that's dealing either with sexuality or with gender in some way, it typically is jarring to us because it's very countercultural. In fact, it seems to be breaking some of the core rules that we have in the culture in the United States right now. And so I wanted to say something again, not to apologize, but just to prepare you and to say, all right, um, and, and here's how I want to invite you to prepare yourselves for this. For some of you, you're kind of like, all right, I know this passage is in here. I know what's going on. I have my bearings. Um, for some of you, you might feel like, all right, I kind of want to not listen to this because I feel like I have some objections. Now, here's my encouragement. There are times where you reach a passage in the Bible and you read it and it's jarring and it turns out that there's some reason to say, all right, this is actually not applicable to today because of a variety of different reasons. But then there's other times where you come to a passage and just the fact that it's jarring may be God's way of saying, we as a culture have gotten so off base in this area that the problem is not with God, the problem is with us. The problem is that we need to open up our minds to the idea that God's path for us may be wildly different than the way that the prevailing culture is going in an area. And I absolutely believe that that's the case when it comes to issues related to sexuality and related to manhood and womanhood. So that's kind of the introduction to say, all right, I want to invite you, even if you already kind of feel like, all right, I know where this is going, I'm not going to agree with it. I want to invite you to engage with it. And, and I also want to invite you to do this. You know, I, I'm going to give the message and bring us through this. Um, if afterwards you feel like I, I have follow-up questions, I need to talk to somebody about this. I want you to know I am not unaware that there are people who are part of this church that disagree with our stance on this issue. I know you're out there. Some of you, I know you're out there because you've come and talked to me about the fact that you disagree with this. And I say that only to say, you are not going to have your name written on some naughty list if you come up and admit that you disagree on this. It's going to be okay. We can talk. We can even make an appointment about it. Uh, or you can do that with me or any of the elders, any of the pastors. I just want to invite, this passage is not meant to lead us at a, to a point where we're walking out of here this morning kind of feeling like, well, God makes the rules and I guess we just got to do it. This is a passage that in many ways points towards a reality of the gospel that we get to celebrate together. And so even the bigger point in all of this, when we talk about this, because throughout 1 Timothy, we've been talking about the passages in terms of house rules. What are the things that we do as God's people that set us apart as unique? And the house rule that will be highlighted through the passage today is the house rule that we embrace our roles that as part of the body of Christ, all of us, not just women, not just men, 
all of us embrace our roles to be part of the mission that God has called us to. And part of what goes on in scripture when we come to any passage that's dealing with gender roles between men and women is that we need to remember this reality. And that's that gender roles in the church are a reflection not of discrimination, but of design. And as Paul gets into a specific way that manhood and womanhood is played out within the church, his bigger point is that there's a music behind these dance steps, that there's a reality that guides us to do some of these specific things. And when that reality is put on display, God's good design and the gospel itself is put on display. So with that said, I want to go ahead and read our passage for this morning. And you can follow along in your Bible or you can follow along as I put the passage up here on the screen. First uh, Timothy chapter two, starting in verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you lead us through this time. I pray that you give us understanding into your word, and I pray that you give us openness um, to things that are uncomfortable for us or that make us want to check out. Father, I pray that you put the gospel of Jesus on display through us. I pray that the way that we honor one another and build one another up and the way that we embrace the roles that you've called us to will exalt Jesus, will glorify you, and will bring life to each of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so you can see, in case you were like, is this passage really going to be jarring? All right, I read it. You're like, all right, he was right. That was kind of jarring. Uh, but, but here's what I want to do. Big picture, just to walk through. This. So we got these five verses, and there sort of is a flow to how Paul unfolds this to Timothy. The first two verses, verses 11 and 12, are just the instructions. Just says, all right, here's the facts, here's what you're supposed to do in the church. Verses 13 and 14 then give the reasons. He's saying God isn't just randomly pulling rank. God has given you these instructions, and then he's given you a reason behind it. He's given you the music behind these dance steps that he's calling you to practice. And then in verse 15, we get a promise. And the promise is baffling and mystifying at first. But when we get to the heart of what Paul is really giving in the promise, there's a beauty that comes not just to the women who are being addressed in this passage, but to all of us as God's people. So we've got the instructions, we've got the reasons, and then we have the promise. And so we'll start with the instructions, which in many ways is the most difficult, at least in our hearts, sort of the most difficult part to take on. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So first of all, just for the setting in this, if you were here the last couple of weeks, chapter two is really walking through the life of the church as we gather together in settings like this. 
So he talked about when we're gathered together, we're all going to pray. And then specifically to the men, he said, hey, when we're gathered together, you're going to pray with one another instead of bringing in your petty conflicts and fights. And to the women, he said, hey, and and when we're coming together, you're going to look to put good deeds on display instead of distracting people with what you're wearing. We're all coming together to build one another up. And so he still is in in the context of we're all coming together as a church family for settings like these, for public worship. And so that's where he talks about these instructions. And if you look at verses 11 and 12, you can see that there sort of is a parallelism, where in verse 11, he'll talk about a general reality, and in verse 12, he'll talk about a specific thing that we do in light of that general reality. So verse 11, when he says, a woman should learn in quietness, which, by the way, the word quietness doesn't mean utter silence. It just sort of means a spirit of quietness, a spirit of gentleness, So when he says, all right, the woman should learn in quietness, that parallels verse 12, where he says more specifically, I do not permit a woman to teach. Now we take those two together and then say this, all right, is Paul saying that he doesn't permit a woman to teach in any setting ever? Some of you are shaking your heads and you're right. That's not what he's calling here. In fact, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 11, written by Paul, he talks about public gatherings of the church and he talks about women praying and prophesying in those settings. So he's not saying that there's not a public role for women to speak in church. Um, In fact, you, you know this, if you've come here long enough, you know that this happens regularly where we'll have women up here leading worship of women who are part of testimony videos or sometimes interviewed in some way up here. So he's not saying that there's no role at all for that. And he's not saying that there's no role for teaching men in a private setting, because if you were to read through the book of Acts, you would see this happen several times with one of Paul's close friends, Priscilla. And one time in particular, where where there's a teacher named Apollos, who's going around proclaiming the message, but he hasn't heard the full message yet. And so Priscilla and her wife uh, and her husband, Aquila, bring Apollos publicly and correct his teaching. And the way that the passage is told, it actually seems like Priscilla was the one who knew a bit more about how to correct him in this. So he's not saying there's no setting ever in which a woman is permitted to teach a man. What he is talking about is the public church setting. He's saying, all right, this is the way that it's going to work when you're gathered together. The women aren't going to be the upfront teachers in that setting. They're going to be, like most people, they're going to be quietly listening, learning, and taking it in. And so we as a church, we we look to play this out. We look to follow the leading on this. We also look in other areas. You might say, all right, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for small groups? And what does this mean for Sunday school? And what does this mean for youth group? And I'll just tell you, for we as a church family, where we've landed on this is we said, all right, the upfront Sunday teaching, that's a part of worship, we're going to reserve that for men because of this passage. And the rest of it, we're going to look to be guided by the Spirit in a case-by-case basis. We're going to look to be guided by the big picture. And then there's a second parallel that he does in this passage. Verse 11, he ends verse 11 by saying, in full submission which submission is not just a female thing, it's a human thing, that we all submit to someone, we all order ourselves under authority. So he says in full submission, and that parallels verse 12, where he says, also, I do not permit a woman to assume authority over a man, she must, she must be quiet. So there we've got kind of the parallels. All right, he's not permitting a woman to teach, and we take that to mean the public upfront teaching of God's word in a setting like this. And he also says, I do not permit a woman to exercise or to assume authority over a man. And once again, the question is, is he saying that there's never going to be a woman in any position of authority over any man? It's so quiet. It's so awkward. (laughs) Guys are like, what's going on? The the answer is no. 
Many of you were a part of Vacation Bible School just a couple weeks ago, where we had Lori, who's our children's ministry director, in authority over a whole bunch of us. So we don't look at this and say, well, there's no place ever in the church where there would be a a position where a woman is in authority over a man. We understand this to be a preview of where Paul is going next in chapter three when he talks about elders. So at this church, we say, all right, we're not saying that there's no position of authority available to women. We're not saying that there's no speaking role available to women. What we're saying is, all right, from the upfront Sunday teaching and for the position of elder, we see those as the things reserved by men. And in the rest of it, we're going to look to use wisdom to fulfill what God has called us to in the overall picture of embracing our roles. And I know, once again, that even what I've just said, it's very countercultural. But if you were to read the Bible, you would find that it seems actually pretty consistent with the story of how God's people have functioned. If you read the Old Testament, all of the priests were men. The priesthood was reserved for men. And the priesthood was sort of the the group of men who would lead the people into worship of God. And when it comes to prophecy, there were definitely female prophets that you see crop up in the Old Testament, but the bulk of the prophetic ministry was always God calling men to that. And you do in the Old Testament see a couple of queens, as opposed to all the kings who crop up. Uh, the only problem is that every queen is somebody who assassinated a king and then took over, <laughs> which, by the way, happens with a lot of the kings also, that they assassinate a king and take over. And so the the reason why I'm saying that is this. If you're reading the Bible and you're saying, this is out of sync with the rest of the Bible, it's really not. It's really, really pretty well in sync with the rest of the Bible. But you might be tempted to say, but it's not in sync with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the center of all this. We're Christians. Jesus is the center. Jesus never would have gone for something like this. So here's what I just want to throw out to you on this. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he was undoubtedly somebody who greatly valued women. There's no way around getting that from the Gospels. The way that he broke down barriers, his entire conversation in John 4 with the woman at the well, you see this consistently in the way that Jesus conducts himself. And yet when it came time for him to choose the 12 apostles, he chose 12 men. And you would just think, if ever there was a time for Jesus to say, we've been getting this wrong, it would have been right there. And frankly, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he is undoubtedly someone who is a great friend of women. And yet when it comes to things like this, he says, no, there's still an order. There still is an order that happens and there's something that informs how men and women interact in these settings. So just for the starters, just for the instructions, we can look at this and say, all right, this seems to point back towards the idea that there's an orderliness, that there's probably a reason behind this. This isn't God just saying, I'm going to make you do this, even though it makes no sense. This seems to be God saying, there's a sense in which men and women are different, and this is a specific way that that's going to be played out. And we see how that works, because where Paul goes next is after giving the instructions in verses uh, 11 and 12, he gives the reasons in verses 12 and 13. And there's two reasons. They're parallel reasons. Verse 13, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, on the surface, it seems like a six-year-old made up this reason. (laughs) Just like, I was there first, so I get it. Like, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? We, we do know, if you go back to Genesis 2, the man was created and then later the, the woman was created. But on the surface, we can say, why, why is that significant? Why is first somehow better? 
And I think what's going on here is not that Paul, Paul is being kind of overly simplistic and alluding to this, but in Genesis 2, if you were to read Genesis 2, the point is not necessarily that because the man was made first, therefore he has a position of authority, but at the very least what you see in Genesis 2 is it's highlighted that the man and woman are different, that there's a unity between them, but there also is a difference. And part of that difference is highlighted in that when he looks at the man and he says, it's not good that the man would be alone, he then says, I'm going to make him a helper suitable to him. And helper doesn't mean somebody inferior to him. In fact, the word helper is used of God frequently in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean somebody inferior, but it does mean there's going to be a difference. They are not playing exactly the same part in this. It's going to be the man taking on the role of leadership and responsibility, and there's going to be the woman that comes alongside with wise, sensitive, insightful, strong, courageous help as they partner together in God's calling for what they're meant to do. So he starts in verse 13 by just alluding to the idea of this whole thing, this whole idea that there's going to be a difference between men and women. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2. In fact, by the way, in Genesis 2, you know what hasn't happened yet? Sin hasn't happened yet. It would be easy to say, oh, the only reason why there's different roles for men and women is because of sin coming into the world. It's actually not the case. Because he goes all the way back to Genesis 2 before sin and says, from the beginning, this is how God designed it. This isn't discrimination. This is design. Then in verse 14, he gives another reason for these distinctions. Verse 14, he says, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So what he's doing here is he's moving from Genesis 2, the creation, and he's moving to Genesis 3, the fall. And he's saying, all right, I want you to remember that when it came to the temptation, when the serpent tempted them, Eve, the woman, was the one who was deceived. The man was not deceived. Now, uh, again, on the surface, you could say, well, it's hard to figure out why is this significant? Where is he going here? Is he saying that because the woman was deceived, all women afterwards are now punished and they don't get to get up front and teach? That seems highly unlikely. Instead, what he's doing is, again, he's bringing us back to this scene. And he's saying, all right, I want you to remember this scene. First of all, I want you to remember the scene of when God's good creation was rolled out and men and women were absolutely equal but different. And those differences were going to inform how they lived. And then I want you to remember what happened at the fall. And what happened at the fall informs just how wrong things can, can go when men and women each abdicate their roles instead of embracing them. And as you read this, it could seem like this is an insult to the woman, where he says, Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived. But I want you just to take in what this actually means. Paul's saying, at the fall, when when the serpent tempted them, and and by the way, just so that we're all getting the story right, um, did Adam and Eve both eat the fruit? Yes. Yes, all right, we got that. They both ate the fruit. What he's saying here seemingly is, The woman ate the fruit because she was deceived. The man ate the fruit because... Well, he wasn't deceived. Just think about this for a second. If somebody sins because they were deceived and somebody sins even though they weren't deceived, which one is worse? Kind of like the man does not come off looking good in this situation. I want you just to imagine with me, I'll I'll speculate a little bit on this, but just imagine what this means for what Adam was doing when this happened. 
you have Genesis 3 and you have the serpent targeting the woman and he tempts her and she's clearly taking in the reality of all this and the man apparently is not deceived what's going on. The serpent says to the woman, if you eat of this fruit, you will not surely die. And she is tricked by this. Apparently, the man is not tricked by this. Apparently, he's looking at it and he's like, no, that's not true. We're going to die if we eat that. That's true. And when Satan is saying things along the lines of this is going to fulfill your great purpose, you're going to be like God, you're going to be completely fulfilled. And the woman is like, oh, that sounds really good. Maybe I should go for that. The entire time, the man is sitting over there being like, oh, that's not true. This is going to go really, really badly if we do this. This is going to go really, really wrong. And then the woman takes the fruit and hands it to the man. And he knows we're all going to die because of this. The entire human race is going to suffer because of this. We shouldn't do this. This isn't going to be fulfilling. And she hands him the fruit and he says, sure. (laughs) Women, if you ever doubt just how much power you have over us, (laughs) I want you to think about the fact that the first man ate the fruit knowing it was going to go badly because his wife handed it to him and he kind of seemingly thought, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to mess with a good thing I've got going here. This is not a passage that highlights how good and noble men are and how sort of tricky and deceptive women are at all. But what it does highlight in Genesis 3 is it does highlight that both the man and the woman abandoned the calling that God had given to each of them for how they were going to function well together. And it happened partially by the woman taking the lead And then it happened also by the man absolutely abdicating responsibility and becoming passive. And just, this is an aside on this, um, because I know you could look at this passage overall, the the first Timothy passage and say, well, it's not focused on men and women, it's it's focused on women. And and to some extent that's true. But you can't talk about femininity without talking about masculinity. These are very tied together. Um, Right now in our culture, um, we are very sensitive to a perversion of masculinity, and we're right to be sensitive to it, Um, because there is a perversion of masculinity that instead of us as men um, lovingly and sacrificially and courageously taking on responsibility, that instead we become tyrants and bullies. That is a perversion of masculinity. And thankfully, in our culture today, we're very sensitive to that. We recognize that's wrong, that's bad, that can be abusive. We, we shouldn't do that, that's bad. What I want to say though is there is another very bad perversion of masculinity that we are a lot less aware of in our culture and that's passivity. The solution to the tyrant is not the man who's unwilling to take a stand. And so for men, for all of us, we need to take this to heart. Some of you need to hear the message and say, you know what, I I think I kind of am a tyrant. I I think I'm looking at the the fact that I've been given responsibility and given leadership and I just kind of do what I want and the way that I treat my wife and the way that I treat my kids, man, this is bad. I need to stop this. I need to live out what God is calling me to do with with sacrificial leadership. For some of us as men, that's the calling. I'm not going to put a percentage on it. I'm just going to say the men that I interact with in this church, I'm much more concerned about the passivity. And the number of women that I've talked to in this church that say, if my husband would just take the lead, I would gladly follow. I would gladly go along. If he would just take the spiritual lead, if he would just step in and sacrificially lead us, I would be happy to go along with this. Beware of the temptation towards tyranny, but beware of the temptation towards passivity. And frankly, it was Adam's passivity that set him up for this great fall. 
What Paul is doing here is not saying, well, women messed up, therefore women are punished forever and they're not allowed to be elders and they're not allowed to get up front. What he's saying is, look at what happened when the man and the woman, instead of embracing God's calling for them, abandoned that and inverted it. Chaos came into the world. And what Paul is then saying is, in the church where Jesus is king, we're going to have things that go on that are signs that point towards that reality, that point towards what God has called us to, that the men are sacrificially stepping forward and taking responsibility, and the women are coming alongside in strong and powerful and courageous and wise help. And, and once again, I just have to put this in here. Um, I think most women do not grasp just how powerful your words of affirmation and approval are to the men in your life. You could see them as just kind of words thrown away, words thrown about. I promise you, the men in your life come alive in a way that you would never believe when you build them up. There is a power when we partner in this. So Paul is saying, all right, it's not just these instructions that you randomly have to follow because you love God. It's instructions that you are wise to follow because there's a music behind these dance steps. Now we get to verse 15. Verse 15 is the promise. It also is the most baffling verse in the entire book. He says, but women will be saved through childbearing. (laughs) Women will be saved through childbearing. Now he does add on if they continue in faith, love and holiness and propriety. But still we're like, go back to that first part. Women will be saved through childbearing. This doesn't make sense at all in everything that Paul has talked about, in everything that Jesus has talked about. What in the world is going on here? This is a promise, but is the promise that he's given that women's souls are eternally saved through them having babies? And again, the answer to that is no, that's not what he's saying. That's not what Paul has ever said. That's not what any author of the New Testament has ever said. In fact, Over and over again in this letter, Paul would contradict that idea. In fact, in Galatians, Paul talked about the idea that I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care if you're Jew or Gentile. I don't care if you're old or young. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. Anybody who is saved is saved by Jesus. There's no different route for women or different route for men. We are all saved through Jesus. So this absolutely doesn't mean that Paul is saying, all right, women let us into the fall. And so here's the deal. You got to have babies. Otherwise, you're out. So then, what is he saying? And and what I need to say here is, there is not a dominant consensus on what he's saying in this passage, but there's two strong possibilities that are put out there. And I actually want to tell you both of them, because first of all, I'll say, I don't know which one is right. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to lean towards the second one. They both have something that ties into this passage. And so I just want to tell you both of them. Um, So the, the first proposed explanation is this that Paul is using the word childbearing just as shorthand for the idea of embracing a feminine expression in this world. Um, Because we know there are women that don't end up having babies, but we also know that you have to be a woman in order to have a baby. So if you're talking about the whole idea of just embracing the feminine expression into this world, that could be a way that Paul is using shorthand just to say, here's what happens. Women are saved obviously through faith and love for God and because they put their faith in Jesus. But accompanying salvation is the idea that by faith, we've embraced God's calling for our lives. And for women, that's going to tie into things like childbirth, like raising kids, and embracing a unique feminine expression into this world. 
And this is something that, again, comes to my heart when when we talk about where we are as a culture. Um, I think it's tragic that in many ways, as we have kind of a quest for equality, which a quest for equality is a very good thing, but in the quest for equality, the message that often comes to women is the way that you get equal is by doing all of the things that men do. Here's what I want to gently invite you to. I want to invite you not to settle for striving to be like a man. I want you to embrace the idea that God has called you to a unique contribution to the world that a man could never make. And if you have friends in your life that are kind of talking you out of this, if you have friends in your life that are saying, no, no, if you don't work, if you don't do this, if you're staying home with your kids, that's really not valuable. Maybe you need some new friends. I'm only half joking right now. Maybe you need some friends that are saying there's something beautiful and powerful about femininity and you don't want to downplay that. You don't want to minimize that. You don't want to be in a position where you're like, gosh, I'm kind of sensitive and I wish I didn't cry that much. Maybe there's a reason why you're that way. Maybe you are sounding the alarm to men who are not tuned into these things. There's a unique expression of femininity and it's powerful. Don't ever hide that. Don't hide that light under a bushel. Now, so, so that's possibility number one. Here's possibility number two of what Paul means. And this is the one that, you know, kind of gun to my head, I'd say, I think this one is right. He says, the women will be saved through childbearing. The literal way that this would be said in Greek might be something more like, women will be saved through the childbirth. A specific one and singular. Now, just think about what Paul has been talking about. He's been in Genesis 2, and he's talked about the creation. And then he's been in Genesis 3, and he's talked about the fall and talked about sin coming into the world. And in Genesis 3, if we already have this in our minds, we might start thinking about something that God said in Genesis 3. And that's that he pointed to the serpent, and he said, serpent, you're going to have an offspring, and the woman's going to have an offspring, and the woman's offspring is going to crush your offspring. It was the first promise of a child one day being born who is going to deliver humanity from the curse that the serpent brought into the world. I think it is entirely possible that this is what Paul is saying. That he's saying, you know what? Sin came into the world because of all that happened. But I want you to know that this is not a lost cause because women, frankly, along with all the rest of us, are going to be saved through the birth of a child. We're going to be saved through God raising up a deliverer. We're going to be saved through a woman taking on what God has given her, even though it's going to be a very uncomfortable situation. Just think of how it was for Mary when she got that news. You're going to be an unmarried pregnant woman in first century Jerusalem. And her receiving that ended up leading us to the point that the Savior was born for all of us. I think in many ways, what Paul is getting at in this passage is he's saying, you know what? When we abdicate our roles as men and women, that's a symptom of the problem. That's not the problem. That's a symptom of a deeper problem that we have. And that's that we need forgiveness and we need rescue. But the good news is there's the birth of a savior. And the good news is that baby grew up and sacrificed himself for all of us. Where sin shows up, there's going to be final redemption. So in all this, we get a reminder of that. And what we also get back to is the calling that Paul's given us. Men, women, old, young, different spiritual gifts. You know what we do in the church? We embrace our roles. 
And we trust that where God has put us is a good place. We trust that if we don't have the spiritual gift that somebody else has that we kind of wish we had, that God is wise in that and our contribution is going to be unique. And we choose that whether God has created us as a man or a woman, there is a unique contribution that goes on there and that there's a beauty that's shown to the world when we embrace how he's created us to be. And and so here's what I want to do now. We're going to soon, we're going to enter into a time where the band's going to come back out and we're going to have our response time. We're going to have pastors and elders and members of the prayer team on both sides of the stage. And and the reason why we're going to do this is because we want to allow for us to be responsive to God's calling for us. There may be something going on in your heart right now where God is moving in you and God is convicting you. Or frankly, there might be something going on where you're saying, this doesn't actually have anything to do with what we've done this morning, but I know that I need prayer because of something going on in my life. During the time that the band is playing this song, you're going to have the freedom to come up to any one of these sides, to any pastor or elder or prayer team member who's up here and just get prayer with them at any point. And you know, as, as you prepare for this, let me just give you some options of why this might be a time where you might want to seek prayer. The first is this. You might be coming in this morning and saying, you know what? Ultimately, the biggest thing going on in my life is not necessarily how I'm living out life as a man or as a woman. The biggest thing going on in my life is that I'm looking at the chaos and I'm looking at the things going on and I'm starting to realize that the reason this chaos is in my life is because I'm still in charge and I need to yield to the Savior. I need to place my faith in Jesus. I need the forgiveness and redemption that's talked about in this passage and throughout this book. It may be your day to come up and pray with someone because today is the day for you to put your faith in Jesus. For some of you, it might be different. There there might be, be some of you as men who are out here today and the reason why you need to come forward and get prayer is because you've come to realize either I'm a tyrant and I need to repent of that or I'm passive and I need to repent of that. I want to see the Spirit bring about new fruit in my life. Or as a woman, you might be looking at things and saying, you know what, I've kind of been trying to be the neck that turns the head. I've, I've kind of tried to manipulate and control from where I am. And you know what, I need to step back. I need to trust God that God is going to work through how things set up. And so it might be a time of repentance for you. It might be a time of prayer for help. It might be that there is some other element of chaos that's happening in your life whether it comes to health or whether it comes to sin or whether it comes to finances, that you just say, I need help. I need a brother or sister to pray with me. During this next song is the prayer and the opportunity for us to respond to what God has been doing in our midst. So as we prepare for that, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to pray for us as we enter into this time. And Father, we just come to you. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us. We thank you that despite the mess that we've made in this world, and even the mess that we've made between men and women, thank you so much that you sent a savior. Thank you that you don't leave us on our own and that you not only give us grace and mercy, but that you also give us help. Father, I pray that in this church family, there would be such a showing of us living out your calling for us as men and women that it will be a sign to the world of the gospel of Jesus. And I pray that during this time of worship, as we all respond to you in our hearts, I pray that you bring about healing, that you bring about help, and that you bring about a new perspective through the time that we spend fixing our eyes on you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.